Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Talk. I am your host, Chef Michael Silverstein. Guys, welcome back. Got a fun episode for you today, but before we dive in, I want to give you a little bit of information. So, as you know, in this podcast, we sit down with a guest every episode to talk about some of the really important conversations that need to be had in the world of food, diet, nutrition, health, keto, you name it. We're sitting down and talking about it and having the honest conversations because let's be well, honest, not all the information out there is good or sound. So we're going to dive into that a little bit today. And if you want more information about the podcast, go to chefmichael.com slash podcast. That's chef-michael.com slash podcast. You can also get all of our bonus episodes as well as some goodies that come with being a member of our Patreon at patreon.com slash chefmichael. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash chef michael join as a member for just a few dollars a month you get all the bonus episodes and more plus if you've enjoyed what's happening here you get to support this podcast just a little bit a few dollars goes a long way here i just want to keep the cameras rolling finally thank you so much to our sponsor redmond real salt for providing support for the podcast guys it is by far my favorite salt in the game it tastes good but even more importantly to me it's packed with over 65 trace minerals uh, because it's really just <laughs> scraped out of the ground. I know that sounds weird, but it's pulled out of the ground in a beautiful mine right here in the USA in Utah. It's completely natural. It's an ancient dried up seabed. So it is packed with all those good uh, round electrolytes, diverse electrolytes and minerals. So for the ketogenic diet, it's a great way to get in those electrolytes, which is super important. But if you use it in your cooking or maybe a little splash in your water or in your bulletproof, you're going to get all the things that you need right from the salt. Go to redmond.life and place your order using the checkout code CHEFMICHAEL for 15% off your order. FYI, they also have some really cool other products like toothpaste, which I use, face masks, electrolyte supplements for your drinks, all kinds of other cool stuff. That's redmond.life with the discount code CHEFMICHAEL for 15% off. My guest today is a podcaster, blogger, author, and just uh, a really, really fantastic, knowledgeable member of our uh, keto and really health community. Welcome to the stage, Vanessa Spina. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Good. Can you hear me okay? We're across the world right now. So if there's a little bit of a delay, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds great. Can you hear me? I hear you loud and clear. You are coming at us from Prague, is that correct? Yes, I'm in Prague right now. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. I gave you um, a little bit of an introduction, um, but you are a sports nutrition scientist, is that correct? Yes, sports nutrition specialist, but I studied biomedical science at U of T, so... I did study science, but I like that. Sports nutrition scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I swear I had this right uh, in my head over and over and over again because um, I, I, you know, I obviously pay a lot, of, a lot of attention to the work you do. Um, you also have Thank an you. awesome book. You have a podcast, which I've had the honor of actually being a guest on once before and maybe one again. I guess we're going to record right after this as well for your podcast. So we're going to yeah, do a two for a two for today, right? A <laughs> two for one. Yeah, a little podcast swap. I love it. That's awesome. Um before we dive in, um I guess I'd love for you to just share um 
you know, who you are and where our friends can find you on social media, as well as maybe the name of your podcast and, um, and your book. Sure. So I wrote my book right here, Keto Essentials. It came out in 2017 and I had started my blog, which is at Ketogenic Girl or ketogenicgirl.com in 2015. And I've been running those since then. And then the podcast, we're almost at 4 million downloads. It's amazing, but it's been a couple of years and it's called the Fast Keto Podcast. Awesome. That's so cool. And uh, at Ketogenic Girl on Instagram, right? I love that. I just want to point that out. Well, um, you know, let's dive right in. One of the things about my podcast, I called it the talk because really there's no agenda. I don't have any pre-written questions. We're just going to kind of talk and see where it goes. Um, you know, we, we've talked many times before, both on and off podcasts. And, um, I love your approach to keto. I also feel like, like all of us, it has changed a little bit over time, right? Um, so I'm kind of curious, your approach to eating, walk us through kind of where you are now and maybe how that's changed over time a little bit. This is literally my favorite question to ask on Fast Keto uh. is how have you evolved your keto? Because we all have and you're always like learning and growing and you're constantly learning new things. And if you're in this space, you're probably a bit of an experimenter. So you're trying new things all the time and then learning like really honing in on what works for you. And I think that's the main message that I try to present all the time is like no one else can really tell you what's going to work for you. The only way you can figure it out is you got to try, like try as many different things as you can. And I think that's frustrating for people. They just want to be told like, just do A, B and C and you'll get all the results that you want. But we wouldn't be in this situation with like an obesity epidemic and everything if it weren't for the fact that we don't have answers. So the only way to figure it out is find like good science-based approaches, try them out. And it's also important to not get stuck. Like if you, even I found, I found keto was working great for me. I'm like, I'm going to try this carnivore thing. And then I was like, I'm going to try the higher protein thing. I'm going to try high fatty. Like I'm always switching it up because that's when you go, you go back and you're like, oh no, this, this is really what works for me. And I didn't know until I did it. And then I went off it. And then I went, you know what I mean? Like it's that trial and error. So when I first started, I was doing like the main definition of keto that you see out there, the high fat macros, doing a lot of dairy. And that didn't necessarily work that well for me. I actually gained 20 pounds when I first started Mm. keto. So then I was like, I really got to figure this out. So I went back to the books. Literally, I went back to school to study to become a nutritionist and also study biomedical science. And it was the only way that I could settle all these online debates and all this information, you know, deluge coming at us these days, which is like, you just don't know what to make of it. There's just so many different approaches. So what I've sort of, when I started doing high fat keto, and I still recommend this for people is really helpful because you have to make that transition from being a sugar burner to being a fat burner. And you also are like, coming off of these drugs that release all this dopamine in your brain. So you are coming off of sugar and highly processed foods and you need to have these replacements and things. So these keto foods and the high fat really, really helped me. You're cutting off one source of energy, which is mainly carbohydrates. 
and then you're switching to lipids, which are more hydrocarbons, like they're both forms of energy, but you have to have a replacement or you're just going to fall flat on your face. So doing the high fat keto at the beginning really worked well for me. About four years into it, then I started becoming more and more influenced by what I was seeing in the carnivore space. And I was more and more interested in this like higher protein. And what I learned from that is that I was protein deficient from being a vegetarian for about 17 years. So I was always ravenous and yet I was always stuffed with food. And when I overcompensated with protein, that's when I really started to hit like real satiety for the first time in my life where I would be eating and I'm like, oh, I just don't even want another bite. And that was unheard of for me to ever like push away a plate that still had food on it. Um, so doing these experiments helped me evolve it over the years. And now I've settled in at what I call just like a whole foods nutrient dense forward keto, which is all mostly single ingredient, real foods. I don't eat a lot of like keto treats or sweets or bake things like that much. Um, if I want to treat, I'll have like some high fat yogurt with a little bit of stevia or make egg pudding, like just really simple things. And the high fat over time, I've tweaked it downwards more because I'm getting some of that fat from my own body now that I've trained my body to burn fat. But then <laughs> we could talk about this more. I've gone through stages where I recently did high fat keto again for about six months because I was looking to get pregnant. So there's like different goals, right? And it, it depends on what your goal is as well. I, I think you just nailed it. Like there, there are so many different goals and this idea that keto is one thing or like putting these labels on keto versus carnivore. I think there's a lot of infighting within the keto space yeah. when we're really all here for the same reasons, which is just to get healthier. And there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of tools in the toolbox you can use to do that. Um, but I'm really intrigued by a few things that you just said. And so we'll kind of bounce around a little bit based on that. I, I know what you mean. My keto has changed. I've landed almost exactly what you described onto a very kind of whole food approach. I don't do any packaged keto treats anymore unless I'm absolutely need to. I'm on a road trip or something. Um, I do some keto baking, but I try to do my keto baking with like four or five ingredients only and keeping mm -hmm. it very simple. Um, but, you know, you, you mentioned kind of finding the keto that works for you, finding the keto that works for your goals. The question I have for you, though, is also, is it possible that our bodies also change during our keto process? So we need to shift. In other words, what maybe was like a weight loss thing for me in the beginning, then my body's like, oh, yeah, I, I know what this is already. I'm not shocked anymore. I'm used to this high fat, low carb diet. Um, and then it kind of adapts. So I'm kind of curious your thoughts on this idea of like metabolic adaptation as a requirement for making these shifts, not only what works for me and my goals, but like this also no longer works for me. So now I'm forced to switch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get that. So in one sense, I think what you're asking is if you need to switch things up because your body will adapt to what's happening. I think that as long your body is built to default to glucose. So we're glucose burners by default. If glucose hmm. is present in enough quantities, the body will just burn that. Um, and in order to train your body like you have to burn 
body fat, you have to eat more fat and also cut off the glucose. So you're limited in that. And then your body's like, I got to get energy from somewhere. So it's got to get it from your stored energy, your stored body fat. And then also you're draining it and it does go through an adaptation period. And like what I find ironic is my program, my very first program that I put out, the original 20 day challenge is the most successful for people. Even after all this time, I've put out like 20 other programs. That one is the one that works the best for people because it really retrains your body to burn fat. And it also switches you, like you said, to being a fat burner. But over time, I also develop other programs because sometimes people adapt. So then I have like the higher protein plans and then like people, can use these different tools like doing a leaner, you know, approach to keto if you have more body fat to burn. Or if you're in the case where you don't have that much body fat to burn, you're getting kind of lean, then you need to add more fat into your diet or you're just going to feel awful all the time. You're not going to want to do keto because you're going to feel like no energy. <laughs> you need to get energy True. from somewhere. Um, and also a lot of people don't realize that the body's rate limited on a daily basis of how much energy you can actually get from your own stored fat. So you're not going to feel good. Um, you know, if you're eating like too few calories, if you're restricting too much, that kind of thing. So I think that it's important to change things up and you have all these different tools available, like doing leaner approach to keto for a bit, you know, you're still going to be burning fat, just more of your body fat, doing more of a carnivore approach. Like these are things I love cycling in and out of. And I found that they're great tools, but eventually people want to go back to something sustainable. And to me, that's like keto. And it's so ironic now to think back, like keto was a thing that everyone talked about as being so restrictive. <laughs> now it's like regular yeah, keto, high fat keto is like the opposite. <laughs> it's like that reprieve from all the restriction of carnivore and stuff. Right, right. Well, keto as compared to a standard Western diet is restrictive, but not within the low carb space. Um, there's yeah. definitely a lot of free freedom within that. Uh, you know, I feel like for me though, when, and probably for a lot of people, especially if you showed up to keto for weight loss, which I have learned obviously is there's a lot more than weight loss to keto. And we talk about that a lot in this podcast. Um, I actually think weight loss is kind of just a side effect of a keto lifestyle. Um, but you show up for the weight loss and then, you know, six months in or whatever, that weight loss is going to naturally slow down. Your body's adapting. You have less weight to lose, yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of reasons for like a weight loss slowdown. The health benefits though continue. And I want to reiterate that the health benefits continue, but you know, I'm going to ask you like a specific question around like ketones in, in, in relation to this conversation around sort of metabolic adaptation. I used to run very high on ketones the first six, seven, eight months of keto. And like now I'm very clean. I'm, I'm, I hate that word. I'm not trying to say like clean keto, but I, I do really eat a lot of really whole foods. I'm very tuned in to how to assemble a daily eating pattern around getting kind of a higher protein, higher fat diet for me. I have very little carbs. Um, in fact, most days I'm carnivore until dinner. So I'll eat only two meals a day. Lunch is generally carnivore and it's not even that big. Me too. And then dinner. <laughs> yeah. And then dinner, I eat one really, cause I love like a good dinner and I want to be full after, like you said, like I want to eat a big, like I could eat a pound of meat if I need, if I'm really hungry with my dinner, one pound steak or whatever. Um, yeah. But 
I'll like ride around 0.3 on my um, millimoles on my ketones now after a few years of keto. And so I'm just curious if like that's, in your opinion, a reflection. And I hear this a lot. People are like, man, like I have a low ketone number. What am I doing wrong? And so I'm curious your thoughts on that. Number one, does a higher ketone level mean you're you're like going to burn more fat or does it mean that you're doing something better or worse than a low number? And then my secondary question to that is like, is this natural to see your body kind of self-regulate on its ketone output? Yeah. So when I, I love this question because you see it debated all the time. And even like I've done podcast episodes about this and I'll get messages from people with like links to articles and things. And they're saying that, you know, it's not true. Your ketones should always be high, but I've seen this over and over again. I studied it and I've also talked to so many experts and scientists in the space, keto scientists, lipid scientists, protein scientists, who've all told me the same thing. And basically your body at the beginning, when you first switch to making ketones, it doesn't really understand what it's doing. So it's taking fat that you've stored on your body or fat that you're eating, and the liver is taking that fat and chopping it into tiny little pieces of fat, which are ketones. And it does that because if fat itself is those molecules can't cross the blood-brain barrier as easily as tiny pieces of fat. So these ketones provide this secondary backup fuel for glucose for your brain and your heart and certain organs that are glucose. It needs to have this secondary fuel backup. And at the beginning, when it starts doing this, it doesn't know how much you're going to need. It has no idea how many ketones your brain is going to need, how much your body is going to need, et cetera. So what always happens is it overproduces ketones. And what a lot of people don't realize is that when they take the blood ketone measurements, they are seeing a number that is what is left over after your body has made ketones and also used ketones. So it's like the residual that's still there. And one of the reasons that keto is so great for weight loss is because your body basically wastes energy. So at the beginning, you know, you, you test your urine ketones, people do that and they have these crazy like purple readings and everything because your body is literally just spilling that out. It's you're breathing it out, you're peeing out ketones, and you've got all this residual in your blood. So after a while, your body gets used to making ketones and it starts determining, okay, the brain seems to need around this much, the heart's needing around this much, you know, she's eating or he or she is eating this much. So it starts to adapt and the body wants to be efficient in everything that it does. That's why when people go on really restricted calorie diets, eventually they stop losing weight because the body starts to get all it needs from a smaller amount of food. So it slows down the metabolic rate and the body's so efficient. So at the beginning, we see really high ketones. I remember seeing ketones as high as 8.0 when I started. And it was just wild. My ketones were always in the three to like seven range. Um, Now, and a lot of other keto experts I know, just like yourself, I barely measure ketones and it's because my body is making exactly how much I need. So when I test the blood, there's not a lot left over. If you were to test your breath ketones, acetone, you would see higher numbers because that is still being, you know, expressed as you're burning that. But Hmm. in terms of the blood ketones, those are going to tank. And everyone's seen with the urine ketones, they tank almost right away because your body just stops excreting all that. 
Yeah, and I kind of like I'd heard that before that the the pee strips are great just to know the first time yeah. when you've gotten into a state of ketosis, but then they're kind of irrelevant after that because it's just your excess. But I'm hearing a bit of a paradox in that, you know, we see a lot of information around like you want to be 0.5 or to three or whatever for for metabolic ketosis and above three for um, certain, you know, uh, medical reasons or whatever. Yes. But if we're testing our blood, which seems to be kind of the standard, isn't there a bit of a paradox here where it's like, if we're just looking at our excess, we're not getting the whole picture. Um, because I've had people message me and say, I'm testing my ketones. It's coming up 0.1, 0.2, What am I doing wrong? I'm not in ketosis. And I'm like, wait, wait, how do you feel though? <laughs> you know, do you feel, cause I, I'm sure you're like me. I can feel when I'm in ketosis. I can taste it. I can smell it. I know I don't need any blood meter to tell me anything. Um, but there's a paradox here. If our body knows just what we need to thrive, there shouldn't be many ketones left in our blood then. Yes. I mean, it's kind of guessing for you, but the paradox that you mentioned is exactly why I've been working on a tech tool for the past year that's going mm. to be addressing this because it is exactly, it's an estimate. And we have this kind of flaw in our science. Like if you go to the doctor and you have your vitamin D levels tested, it's going to tell you your vitamin D levels in your blood, but it's not going to tell you how much vitamin D you have stored all over your body. So it's, it's like we're we're taking the, we're getting these little snapshots of things, but our science is not very sophisticated to the point where we could tell how much, how many ketones has our liver actually made? How much have we actually used? And it's like, you have this big blind spot and it's just a problem that we have with science today. There's all kinds of issues like that when it comes to measuring insulin. For example, when you're testing your blood sugar, we're looking at these numbers and patterns, but we're not seeing how much insulin did it take to get your blood sugar back down to your baseline after mm. you ate. We have no idea. For some per some people, it might be a tiny amount of insulin. For other people, it may be a huge amount. So like we're basically just getting these tiny little bits of information. We're extrapolating all these conclusions <laughs> when we really barely are scratching the surface. And the best thing is that we have these tools to give us sort of like some idea of what's happening, but we're gonna need way more sophisticated tools to be able to actually understand the full picture. And we're starting to see it with things like a CGM, you know, continuous glucose monitor. Right. You can measure and see what your glucose is doing throughout the whole day. And that's a totally different picture from like just testing it in the morning. When you wake up, it may be elevated for cortisol reasons or others, but seeing the whole picture is so much more important. And I'm hoping, <laughs> this is one of the things that I've been working on for the past year, but I'm hoping as time goes along, we're going to develop tools that are going to be able to help us see the full picture better. But yeah, a little bit Right now, this is like all we have. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And, and sort of in your understanding, simply put, does a higher ketone level mean, not in a blood reading, but in general in your body, is a, is a higher ketone um, production rate going to lead to more weight loss or more metabolic health? Or is that just sort of 
body to body. Cause like I never hit those high numbers. Like I, even when I was at my yeah. highest rate, I was still like maybe up to three, I think a couple times I was 3.5 and I was so proud of myself before I was as well educated um, as to what any of this means. But um, does a high, you know, there's some people who just seem to produce more ketone bodies than others. Yeah. Does it really translate to results? It's really individualized. I mean, I know, like, for example, my friend who you also know, Maria Emmerich, she's been doing yeah, keto course. for like 20 years. She t- says she gets ketones of 0.2.3. Now, even though she's been doing keto all these years, obviously what she's doing is really working for her. She barely has any body fat. She's mostly muscle. She's super lean. She's fit. She's super athletic, but she's always burning energy. She's constantly active and she has very, very low ketones. So to look at her ketones, you would never say, well, Maria Emmerich is not in ketosis or whatever she's doing isn't working, but it's very individual how much we produce, how many ketones we produce. The biggest thing that I would say is that whenever you see very large ketones, it's usually because you've made a change. So say you first start keto, you might see higher numbers over time. Like we said, your body adapts. Say you decide to do a five-day fast and you want to try that out. Your ketones will probably go higher than you've seen them in the past. So you're going to see that they're the, the numbers are higher because your body is now being pushed. It has a higher demand now for energy. So it's being pushed mm-hmm. to make more than usual. And again, if you continue to fast for like a year straight or something, your ketones eventually would go down as well. So the, the times that we see people who are getting really, really high ketones consistently after the initial period is when they're doing a therapeutic ketosis and they're eating so much fat that the body is turning some of that into ketones. But if your goal is weight loss, you don't necessarily have to see or want to see super high ketones. It's more in the therapeutic use. I think it's totally normal. Like the average person who isn't even doing keto, they will go into ketosis overnight through the overnight fast. So like I'll test my husband's ketones he'll be at like 0.2 in the morning. And he's like, he calls himself carb man. Like he's not, he doesn't do any low carb at all. He eats tons of carbs, but he's super fit. And for now it's working for him. He gets 0.2 ketones in the morning. Obviously that goes away during the day, but everyone goes into a little bit of light ketosis overnight. If you're above 0.2, if you're seeing 0.3, 0.4, 0.5 up to one, like that's, kind of the range that most people are in after they've been doing keto for a while. And I wouldn't say that higher ketones indicates more fat burning. It usually indicates a change or that you're eating more fat because your body has to make those ketones from it. Interesting. Well, while we're on the topic of paradoxes, paradoxes, (laughs) um, there's another kind of discussion that I've heard a lot around. And you mentioned this um, when I first started keto, it sounds like when you first started keto, everything was super high fat, super high fat, um, moderate protein. You know, I, my understanding was too much protein would cause um, weight gain. And and we'll dive into the protein part of this in a second. My question for you now is now there's a lot of discussion around, well, maybe we don't need all that fat, especially if we want to burn body fat maybe too much dietary fat isn't necessary. I, I guess I want to bring up this other paradox. We need a higher fat diet to stay or maintain a state of ketosis to some extent. 
the paradox around, well, if I'm trying to lose weight, you know, if you're going to be in ketosis as a marathon runner, that's going to have a different demand. And we're going to need to bump up some of those fats and maybe even a little bit of carbs too, for an athletic perspective of ketosis for somebody interested in fat loss. Can too much dietary fat get in the way? Is that a bit of a roadblock in the keto space? Yeah. So what's really interesting about this is that it seems to work in different ways for different people. So I've seen people who they actually say and state that they were not able to lose weight until they went up to 3000 calories and it was on a high fat diet. And I'm in a lot of like carnivore face groups and stuff. And I've been observing like, what is the difference for people? And almost every single time you see a question posed about this, half the answers say, I didn't lose weight until I went high fat. The other and half says, I didn't mm. lose weight until I went lean. So I don't know what it is. I was just talking about this with um, Mike Mutzel on, on my podcast on Tuesday. Like, I don't know why. <laughs> it's like for some people, they won't lose weight until they add fat. And again, it goes back to what we started about t- talking about at the beginning. The only way to find out is to try both. And someone asked me in a DM this week, how long should you try, you know, each diet to see? And I would say ideally like three months, doing it for three months and really giving it a full shot, whether that's the high fat or the lean or both. But I would say minimum six weeks because that it takes time for the body to just adjust to what you're doing. But I would recommend that everyone, if they're not sure which way to go, try both. For the majority of people though, going a little bit leaner if they've been weight loss stalled tends to work. And that's just, you know, energy biodynamics. Like you're you're cutting your caloric intake by cutting down some of the fat. You just don't want to go too low. Like don't go to the extreme where you're not eating any fat at all throughout every single day of the week because that's when you can have metabolic slowdown. So, you know, one tool that's really great is to alternate days doing like really lean um, and then going back to your regular keto on the off days or doing like lean days during the week and then going back to higher fat keto on the weekend and making sure you're at your maintenance calories because that is how you prevent metabolic slowdown. So making sure to keep the calories at what they were at maintenance at least two or three days during the week. But I think for most people, cutting some fat usually helps them get through a weight loss stall. I don't think that you need to be eating copious amounts of fat to burn your own body fat. Like that could be a block for some people, but in rare cases, it seems that sometimes if if there's been like a history of extreme restriction or, you know, there's other kinds of things going on that we don't know that sometimes doing a higher fat approach, it kind of signals the body that, well, we have tons of energy and food around so we can shed some of our body fat and we don't have to hold on to it. Like there's so many different factors in terms of signaling in the body. But I think most people, if they cut their fat by like 300 calories of fat or so, like 30 grams, they'll probably see some movement on the scale. And you've now trained your body to burn fat. So where is it going to take energy from if it needs it from your stored body fat? Right. Well, like this has to be fired up. I love what you just said too, to make sure you're getting in those maintenance calories, because um, I think it's a really important topic. I think when a lot of people hit a weight loss stall, they immediately resort to calorie restriction, which may have quick results 
at that moment, but could have longer term implications that are going to get in their own way. Right. Um, and so, and, and this is such a big topic because I also feel like uh, the discussion on using fat as a lever up or down also changes if you're like keto or carnivore. Like if, if you, if you have no carbs or very low carbs because you're on a carnivorous diet, I'm sure how your body and how you can leverage fat, um, changes from a keto person as well. So this is so individualized. The other thing I want to really commend you for is what you just said about three months or at least six weeks you know, I get messages all the time, like, Hey, I've been doing this for two weeks and I've hit a stall. And I'm like, no, no, two weeks is not not a stall. And it's hard. And I get it because I've been there. The idea of doing anything, you know, our, our diet culture is not around longevity, right? Like when you're watching TV and these like commercials come up or these keto pills come up and it's like, lose 20 pounds in 30 days, you know, get that bikini body in 30 days. And it's like, nothing happens in 30 days. Um, and so I'm really, I just want to really kind of give you a virtual round of applause for what you just said. And it's not fun to hear that as a listener, when you, I, even though I know this information, when you said, uh, what did you say? Three months or up to six weeks, my, the, 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 the chubby kid in me went, what? (laughs) But the, but the brain here went, well, yeah. Um, but it's not fun to hear that because the idea that we're going to have to try something for six weeks to 12 weeks before we even know if it's really going to be effective. And if it doesn't work, we got to do another six weeks or 12 weeks of something else. That seems, I don't know what the right word is daunting, terrifying, unfortunate, but it's, it is a reality. And I I appreciate you saying that. Um, Same. Okay. Same question with, protein. Let's talk protein for a second because I think there there is definitely some new conversations being had um, around protein and maybe we shouldn't be demonizing it as much as we used to in this space. Why don't you chime in on the discussion of protein as a lever as well? Yeah, so there's a big misconception that if you eat a lot of protein that you'll go into gluconeogenesis, which is the formation of new glucose. So you'll basically kick yourself out of ketosis if you eat too much protein. But as we talked about earlier, you don't need to be in ketosis to lose weight. I mean, tons of people burn fat and lose weight without being in ketosis. Being in ketosis has a lot of therapeutic benefits that come along with it, which is why a lot of people, it's their preferred state to be in after they've experienced it. You know, really high energy, mental clarity, all the stuff we talk about. But um, if the goal is weight loss and I mean, this is like the main theme of my podcast is weight loss. Like on every episode, I'm like, okay, but that's great. But let's talk about fat loss because, you know, we all want to understand it and how to optimize for it. So if you're optimizing for weight loss, you don't necessarily have to be in ketosis in order to generate fat loss. And having a higher protein intake can actually lead to better weight loss results in a, for a couple of reasons. The first is that you tend to get better satiety. So protein is the amino, it's one of the macronutrients that is essential. We have to get it from external sources. And it's seen in research to be the most satiating macronutrient. Like people debate all the time and say like it's fat versus protein. But if you look at it from a biochemical point of view, 
there's nine amino acids that our body has to get. There's even one that becomes essential only, conditionally essential in certain cases. So it can be up to 10 amino acids that we have to get from external sources. Our bodies cannot produce these amino acids. And with fat, there are two essential fatty acids. With carbs, there are no essential carbs. So the fact that there are so many of these amino acids that we have to get from our food is, in my opinion, the main reason why protein is so satiating. And we've seen this in certain ad libitum studies where people will be fed a bunch of food and then they'll be told to go hit a buffet and just eat as much as they want. And in those studies, the ones who preloaded with more protein they ended up eating way less than the study participants who didn't preload on as much mm. protein. So it is scientifically proven to be the most satiating macronutrient. So if you center your plate around protein, you're going to just end up eating less. And so many people have found that on carnivore, you just get to a point where you're like, I just I have no interest in food anymore, <laughs> um, which for someone like the past food addiction or anything like that, it's astonishing when it actually happens to you and you're like, but I can eat all this, but I'm like, I just don't eat, like just get it out of my face. And it, protein does that. It's just so satisfying. And fat does have some satiety effects, but not as much as protein. So you really make life easier for you if you focus your meal on protein and making sure that you get as much protein as your body needs your body is going to be so satiated. Um, you're not going to be interested in food. You're going to find yourself not ever thinking about food because you're so satiated. And that just is half the battle, right? Is like feeling full, feeling satisfied and just being able to get on with your day and live your life without like being preoccupied with food. If anyone's struggled with, you know, excessive weight gain, you know, that food is just like a major preoccupation. And, I made the mistake, and a lot of people do, of becoming vegetarian for weight loss. And that just, it creates the opposite effect because you barely eat Correct. protein at all. And then you become like protein deficient. And so you're constantly thinking about food every minute of the day and you don't understand why. So eating more protein and centering your meal around that is really, really important. And there's different recommendations for how much protein is appropriate. One of the best guidelines I found is from protein scientist, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and her teacher, Professor Don Lehman. They say to aim for about 30 grams of protein at each meal. If you're having three meals a day or, you know, 90 grams total for the day as like a starting place. Um, and those requirements go up the older you are because of our muscle and bone needs to be replenished. But centering your plate around protein if your goal is weight loss, I think it's the best thing that you could possibly do. And it's very unlikely that that protein is going to get turned to glucose in your bloodstream. Um, you know, more often than not, you're just going to feel really, really satisfied. Well, yeah. And from a kind of a chef or even nutritional perspective, most protein also has fat with it by nature. So for yes. focusing our plate on the protein we're going to get everything kind of there, which, which will lead me to my next question. But I just want to, um, I didn't know you were vegetarian before 
uh, keto. I was also, I was a vegetarian for eight years. It's where I gained all my weight. I was yeah. always hungry. And on a vegetarian <laughs> diet, I, now I did have legumes and beans and other things that were higher in protein, but they're also extremely high in carbs and starches. And hunger levels um, sustain really different when it's fat and protein-based versus carbohydrate-based where we get those big glucose spikes. And I was hungry like every two hours. And and that's very normal. And so, but I never really knew that was a protein deficiency. Um, and, you know, there are these days even now on, uh, on my current lifestyle where like for no unexplainable reason, I'm just like hungry all day. Other days, I'm totally fine. Like yesterday, I didn't even think about food until like 2, 3 p.m. I had a little bit of meat and cheese and I didn't eat until dinner. So I almost did one meal that day with like a little carnivorous snack. Other days, it's like I wake up hungry. I just stay hungry no matter how many times I eat. And now you've got me thinking like, is that just a protein issue? Uh, is that my body asking me for protein? So cool, really cool stuff. I, I <laughs> did not know that. Um, and I'm going to play with that a little bit. Um, on those hungry days, like if I just, if I just need some meat. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So you, uh, you kind of walked into my next question. Um, let's talk carnivore for a second. I, I know you um, have yourself done a lot of carnivore, carnivorous um, eating. I have experimented it, with it as well. I am not carnivore all the time. I've done, I did a 30 day carnivore um this past august just as kind of a metabolic reset as we were talking about i like to kind of randomly reintroduce new eating patterns just to keep i don't know if there's any science behind this but just to keep my body guessing a little bit um to prevent too much adaptation so i'll kind of do like you know carbier months and carnivorous months that are extremely low carb and just kind of play with that and where i've landed today as i mentioned is that i basically am a carnivore until dinner so i'm only eating veggies once a day on most days again not a hard and fast rule if i have a lettuce wrap for lunch so be it you know like again like i don't try to put myself in in food prisons as i call it i, I want to build <laughs> healthy relationships with my foods um, but I have really enjoyed carnivorous eating. Personally, I feel my best on it. I have amazing gut health on carnivorous eating. However, I personally find it hard for long-term use, both as an eater and as a cooker. <laughs> I I love the diversity that comes with eating um, vegetables and, and keeping vegetables as a part of my diet. Um but let's dive into carnivore eating a little bit, um, both from a, a personal perspective and more from a nutritional perspective, uh, benefits, risks, long-term sustainability. How have you kind of come to understand carnivorous eating? I know that's a big question, but let's just kind of dive in. Yeah. So I sort of went like full carnivore about three years ago in the spring and really, really enjoyed it. I did it solid for about two years. And in that time, I was doing like these uh, high protein experiments. And it's crazy. I mean, you just get into like a rhythm and a flow after a while. And I have never thought about food less. Um, I had the most like food piece that I mm. ever had in my life. Um, and it, it was to the point where uh, over Christmas this year, was the first time I had avocado. And I was like, I haven't had avocado in like three years. And now I started having it every day again. But like you get into this rhythm and like you just 
food becomes like really just fuel. Like if you've ever tried it, it just becomes fuel to you because my goal with it was to reconnect with intuitive eating, which I only believe is possible for anyone who struggled with food addiction ever to do with carnivore. I don't believe that it's possible to do it with like all foods because our brains are just very, very sensitive to the levels of dopamine, which surge so high with certain foods that there's just no way that you could be like an average person and just say, well, I'm going to have a donut for breakfast today um, if that's in your past. But with carnivore, you can experience intuitive eating. And so I made my food as plain as possible. Like the only seasoning I would use was salt. Um, the plainer that you make your food, the more you can really connect back with an intuitive sense of eating where you're like, you literally only think about food when you become physically hungry, like at that time. And then once you've had a meal, it's, you don't think about it at all until maybe dinner time if you get hungry again. And sometimes you don't because you're just, it's it like the, there's no, you take away all of the secondary appeal of food, all the emotional comfort, all the flavor, like all the excitement, you take away all that stuff. You strip all that away. All you just have left is fuel in front of you. And you really just become like a car <laughs> that only needs gas when it's on empty. So that was an incredible experience for me psychologically coming from like so much sugar and food addiction that had been running my life for so long to experience that even on keto, like I had relief from it, but I still had like pervasive thoughts of food. Then in the summertime, I started reintroducing like more um, vegetables and using it as an elimination diet to test out like which foods really work well for me, which foods don't. And I recommend this to everyone. Like don't do blood alert, food allergy testing, that kind of thing. Just do an elimination diet, do carnivore for a month and then reintroduce one per week of the foods that you want to test. And you'll see right away, like what bloats you, what gives you like some people get um, like aches or soreness, like from peppers or some of the nightshade family, like test all of those different groups out and you'll figure out exactly which foods, like a sort of a blueprint of which foods that you should eat in order to feel your best all the time and never be like uncomfortable, bloated, any of that. So <laughs> I love it for those two main reasons. And I think it's just an awesome experience. Now <laughs> my goal become became becoming pregnant. So I did a carnivore, ketogenic carnivore, like really high fat macros where I was eating like sometimes <laughs> 10 to 15 egg yolks in a day, like just super, super high fat, but still carnivore. And that's when I conceived in the fall. So that worked really, really well for fertility. Everything I know about biochemistry and like hormones all played into that worked really well. And then now I'm doing more of a keto approach. And I think that's going to happen for a lot of people is they'll go to carnivore and then they'll go back towards more keto and paleo because like you said, there's so much variety, there's so much flavor, there's so much texture that you miss out on when you're just eating animal foods, but it's so valuable for those like the satiety, the food piece, the food freedom, you know, and 
I have carried over those effects now. So I still have that food piece. I gained it. I think I had some gut healing during that time. And it sort of healed my relationship with food where I still just think about food when I'm hungry. (laughs) And Mm. I never dreamed that that was possible for me. I thought it was always going to be a part of my life that I would always be obsessed with food no matter what I did. And that was just my fate. And so I've been able to keep the effects of that after doing it for those couple of years, well, I guess two and two and a bit um, with this fall. And so now I've introduced more variety, but I still have like those satiety effects. I think it really corrected the damage I did when I was vegetarian and vegan. Um, So it it was an amazing experience. Interesting. And, you know, fundamentally, I have so much trouble wrapping my head around what you just said. And and I'm not saying this in an argumentative way, but it's like yeah. my world is food, right? And so <laughs> I I always feel like the only way to do your diet wrong is like if you don't love what you're eating. And so this idea of like, let me just do carnivore and salt, no seasonings, no variety of flavor breaks my brain <laughs> you know, I know, and, I know um, like it it makes you get more creative and like you still enjoy the food like I had burgers for lunch every day like I loved my food when I was eating it but outside of that it's I think it's also the fact that you can have as much as you want kind of thing like if I wanted to have 10 burger patties like mm. I could have that um so that also is like a psychological reset where your body's like you know that you're not starving you're not restricting in any way so you can just go ahead and enjoy that and then you're like well I'm full now I'm not uncomfortably full but if I get hungry in two hours I can just have another burger patty so like you just it starts to I think there's this whole emotional, psychological aspect to it that is super healing. Um, that if you've ever gone through like a lot of dieting restriction or like restricted diets, like vegetarian or vegan, that you're like, my body doesn't have to panic or go into this panic mode that it doesn't, it's not getting the nutrients it needs. But you start to like, you still enjoy your food, I promise. Like you'll do things like, (laughs) you know, the burger patties are always delicious. Ribeye steak with butter is always delicious. Like you, I made like egg pudding. I made um, the carnivore waffles like with butter on it. I always enjoyed everything I was eating. But um, you do tend to get like a little more, more creative. Sure. Sure. And, and, and I, I definitely get it from the food. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong or like (laughs) arguing. I just think that the culinary brain in me, it goes against like everything that I've been working through, but that's also because I'm working through my own unhealthy relationship with food. And again, I'm not, I know you're not wrong. In fact, it's just such an interesting, uh, discussion because it's like, well, we don't want to demonize food. We don't want to set a precedent, but we do have to correct those unhealthy addictions, those relationships, which are so real. And I, and I had another discussion, I think, um, in the podcast around food addiction. And um, it what's different about um, food addiction from other addictions is that we still have to put food in our mouth three times a day or two times or one time a day, unlike a lot of other addictions where you can work on it and get away from it. We actually need our addiction to survive. And this idea that you presented fascinates me because it's like, you know, 
switching from this idea of food as this pleasure source and switching it into food as fuel we put in the tank um, is really important. And I, I think you're onto something that, and just as a side note, most restaurants only put salt um, on a good piece of steak. I, I, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be to deliver uh, delicious. I love just a simple, um, like a, a fatty ground beef um, burger with just salt on it or maybe pepper. But again, you know, I think it's an important discussion to be had. And I, I'm fascinated by this idea of kind of doing a temporary um, carnivore approach that's hyper simple. Because when I've done carnivore, I've still gone pretty loosey goosey with like the ability to use seasonings, at least dry seasonings yeah. um, and cheese and dairy. Um, and I know that's, again, definition dependent. Um, but dairy for me is, I'll be honest, one of my triggers. I think cheese is the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> and I have worked on my relationship with sweet foods. I don't quite know if I've worked on my relationship with cheese as much because it's just been a big yeah. part of how I develop flavor in my cooking and just like I can just sit there at the fridge and eat cheese out of the, out of the fridge. So um, I'm curious if your carnivore is is a is dairy dependent or not when you talk about doing that hyper clean, um, almost addiction based food approach to, to carnivorous eating. Was dairy a part of that? I did keep butter in. And I had yogurt as well. I had like okay. a, this Icelandic yogurt a lot, um, but I didn't have heavy cream because that's a food that I could just eat. Like I could eat right. a huge bowl of it and not even like that's satiety signaling. But I think that part of it too is it's a dopamine reset because you cut out like I would say if you want to experience the full like reset of it. Um, cut out all the foods that you can't control yourself of. And that for me, like cheese, I, I really barely had cheese. I really just focused on the meat and eggs, like beef, especially because it's very satiating steak, eggs. Um, you know, I didn't really do poultry or fish much, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but it's extremely satisfying. And I cut out the foods, like for me, truffle cheese, like I could just, before um, I would eat like an entire block of it. Now, like yesterday right. morning, I had um, one ounce and it was the perfect amount. And I am able to moderate foods now that I couldn't. And I think that a lot of it is the dopamine reset where you really bring the dopamine levels like with food down to like normal levels, like mm. going off of heroin, like going off of other drugs. Um, and then once you've had that time to reset, then you can eat it in small amounts. And like even hearing myself saying this, I'm like, oh, I sound like one of those annoying people that I used to hate because they could moderate these foods. I couldn't, but um, really, really think that it, it can reset the levels to the point where you get all the protein that you need, you get, you know, your essential fats, all those needs are met. So you really like are able to have this super healthy relationship with food. And I, I think it's the most powerful tool that I have ever encounter when it comes to, you know, resetting like a relationship with food in a really healthy way. Hmm. That's fascinating. So one of the things that I have heard from people not in, in carnivore, in, in, as carnivores is that carnivores not safe or sustainable long-term, that there are going to be major nutritional deficiencies, not in terms of fuel, but in terms, in terms of other, um, 
you know, vitamin intake and stuff that we need for our body. Uh, can you chime in on that as a, as a long-term carnivore, do we have to supplement to get the other yeah. uh, vitamins? Talk to me about that. I do feel really strongly about incorporating organ meats. And uh, there's a lot of arguments against that, you know, saying there's long-term carnivores been doing it 20, 20 years or more that they just eat steak. Um, but to me, like, if you know me at all on, like, social media or anything, you know I make liver pate at least once a week. I've been recommending it. It was in my very first program in 2015. And it is one of the most nu nutrient-dense foods in the world. And it's also delicious. Like, I, you can make it taste amazing. You, you know, you add butter in there or bacon or truffle salt. Um, but it, it poultry liver is very, very mild. Um, it's almost as nutritious as beef liver. Like it's very, very close in the profile. And to me, you have to have some kind of organ meats in there and liver is the easiest way to do it. Like I'm not about to eat brain, and like, hmm. um, kidney, like that stuff doesn't interest me. Um, but I do, when I'm in the U S I get uh liverwurst from us wellness meats, which has like kidney and liver in there. And I have that at least a couple times a week. Um, I think if you're doing it for an extended period of time, you have to add that in. If you really, if you truly want to be successful in nourishing your body in such a deep way and making it successful, like I just think, why not? Like, why not add that in? It's so inc incredibly nutritious and you're getting all the nutrients that you would otherwise be getting from in smaller amounts, less bioavailable amounts from plants. Um, you know, the main argument with, having plants in your diet is that they provide all these antioxidants. One of the most powerful antioxidants is glutathione, which you make from amino acids. And if you're eating a lot of bone in cuts of meats, you get all the glycine, all the amino acids that you need in order to make glutathione. And it's an incredibly powerful antioxidant. You're also causing less oxidative stress and less oxidative damage because you're burning fat instead of carbohydrates. So you have a less of a need for antioxidants, which you need more of when you're doing a high carb diet. So um, you're really not gonna be missing out on anything. I think the only thing that can be an issue for people may potentially be vitamin C, but again, it's an antioxidant and you have glutathione and you need less antioxidants when you're doing carnivore. So I didn't oh. have any health problems or issues when I was doing carnivore. I felt the best that I've ever felt physically, like not even like, body pain or soreness or anything. Um, and a lot of people experience that it's just like the lowest inflammation, um, diet that you can possibly do. So you really don't have to worry about nutritional needs as long as you incorporate, I think some organ meats in there. Yeah. And, um, I actually, I, I said this earlier, I, I never feel better than when I'm on carnivore. <laughs> Um, I have sustainability problems, not for nutritional reasons, but just uh, for my 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 love, true love for food and um, and all that comes with that. And so I have sustainability problems with carnivore that are kind of my own issues. Um, if somebody d just can't do it, if somebody just absolutely cannot stand liver or ofal, what do we do? Um, is there a way to supplement? that's actually bioavailable because we know a lot of the vitamins on the shelf, the capsules are, are not super absorbable. Um, 
But there's yeah. more and more options now that I've seen out there. Like I know I've seen like people have these like uh, dried liver chips. Um, one of the things that I have taken from time to time is like ancestral supplements, um, dried organ meat capsules. Um, there's more and more companies coming out with these products now. I hear from new ones all the time. So I think it's becoming more and more accessible. Um, but you know, I understand like organ meats are not appealing. Um, there are certain things, certain foods like um, sardines are super, super nutrient dense. And if you mix them in like a tuna salad, it tastes delicious and you don't like notice any other like flavors in there. Um, there's just some certain super, super foods like sardines, roe, you know, fish eggs, um, or caviar is really nutritious too, but you can also hide organ meats. Like people talk about, they'll put some like live beef liver in their burgers or in chili, that kind of thing. I've tried that. You can still taste it. You know, turkey or chicken livers are just so mild. And with some, like I put garlic, pepper, onion, pepper, salt and pepper. I put like a bone broth in there and, you know, butter. It's just so flavorful and delicious. And um, it's, I, I know it can be an acquired taste for some people, but um, it's just like, if you rely on the supplements, you know, you get a bottle of them, like you're going to need to eat like half the bottle <laughs> to get <laughs> as much as you could just from like a little bit of, of uh, liver pate. Um, yeah, you know, I've actually seen, uh, you brought up Maria Emmerich and Craig, her husband, they talk about this a lot. They they post like charts that actually show the bioavailable nutrients and it's like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not well versed in it, but it's kind of shocking what like, um, yeah one ounce of liver has versus one ounce of anything else. <laughs> um, I like there was so it was like 3000 milligrams of something. And then it was like kale had 12 or so, you know, it was like yeah. so yeah. dramatic. It's not like double, triple. It's like a thousand X um, levels of bioavailable nutrients in some of these very nutrient dense um, organ meats versus the things that we assume are in um are in plants. So uh, really interesting, really interesting stuff. So uh, kind of tying it back to where we started the conversation, because you even said on your podcast, it seems like everything kind of ends up back at weight loss because weight loss <laughs> brings people to keto for a lot of reasons. Yeah. You start to discover that it's so much bigger than that. Um, but it, it it's a very attractive um, hook into this lifestyle because I, I think it's like 70% of the U.S. is overweight or obese. So it's a very big topic here in the U.S. and, and a growing topic as well um, in Europe. H- how is carnivore as a weight loss tool, forget about uh, infl- inflammation, gut health, any of the other topics, as a weight loss tool, um, how is carnivorous eating in your opinion? And more specifically, tying back to our discussion on stalls, you know, if somebody hits that real weight loss snag, um, six months in, 10 months in, 12 months in on a keto lifestyle, is a carnivore a good place to kind of level up to? Yeah. So I'd have to say that it's different for men and women. Um, I don't make this distinction that often, but I have noticed trends that for men, if they basically just eat like steak and drink water, their weight loss can be like really, really powerful. Like you're just, just burning fat off like crazy. Um, I have found that for women, 
there tends to be more hormonal issues at play. Um, women also, or anyone who's dieted, maybe the case for men, for some men as well, that if you've done a lot of restriction, like I know dozens of women who've been dieting since they were 12 years old, you know, so if you've been dieting for, you know, 15, 20 years, um, you know, your meta, your metabolism has suffered over the years and your body has become fuel efficient and it has figured out a way to extract the most energy possible from the smallest amount of food. So what happens with a lot of carnivore women is they do see weight loss, but it's not immediate. So they almost go through this, uh, all in experience. If anyone knows Stephanie Buttermore, she did this experience where you basically eat just eat for like six months and you end up eating somewhere. A lot of people end up eating somewhere between 3000 up to 6,000 calories in a day. And you're replenishing all the nutrients, all the protein, et cetera, the fat as well that you've restricted throughout all these years. And you go through the six month period where you probably will experience some weight gain, which is really, really hard and stressful. If your goal is to lose weight, you know, the last thing you want is to gain weight. But what happens during that six months is you have this reverse diet effect where people's metabolisms are corrected. So they go back up to a burning like 3000 calories in a day. And then after that six month period, they suddenly, I found it over and over again. It seems to happen around the six month mark. You really have to stick with it and just enjoy eating, you know, as much meat as you want until you're totally satisfied and your appetite will drop usually to about half after about six months. And then because of that caloric difference in like, say you're burning four, three to 4,000 calories a day, and then you bring it down to 2000, you're now going to drop all this weight, but you're going to do it at a super healthy level of calories instead of at like thousand calories a day or 800 calories a day or something um, that you're doing in the past. So that tends to be where I see people having success with carnivore. It's not always the case. Sometimes people, you know, just lose it all right away, but it just depends on what you're coming from. Like if you're coming from a standard American diet and you've been overeating, and eating all this processed food all day and you go to carnivore, you'll probably just need to do that. Um, but if you come from a, like a lifetime of dieting, restriction, <laughs> vegetarianism, that kind of thing, uh, carnivore, it, it tends to be that kind of cycle where people are like really successful is in that, like taking like a year, like give yourself a year to do a diet break and take, go through that whole process of restoring your health, restoring your meta your hormones, your metabolism, everything. And you'll be able to live the rest of your life, like at your ideal weight at 2000 calories, but you have to be really patient <laughs> to be able to go through that six months. Um, but it's not always the case. That's just what I've seen with most people that I've talked to or interviewed or kind of like some of the trends that I've seen and in, in how sure. it's successful for people. And with the disclosure that everyone's different, we know that. Yeah. Um, but this idea, it's so funny. I was going to ask you about reverse dieting and then you said it, <laughs> um, I, this, this word that's being thrown out a lot now, this idea of reverse dieting. When I first heard the word, what I imagined is like stuffing my face with carbs every day for a few weeks. Or like, it, I think that I didn't even really know what it meant, but it sounds crazy where you're like, I'm just going to do the opposite of dieting. So if dieting is about eating healthy and, and eating in my mind, the word diet 
I associate with restriction, whether that's true or not. My life has taught me that the word diet means restriction. And then, so I'm thinking reverse dieting. Oh, so I just get to eat like an animal, insane amounts of food, whatever I want. It made no sense in my mind. Um, I, my understanding of reverse dieting obviously has changed once I've done some of my own research and talked to people about it, of course. Um, and obviously now my understanding is that it, it's not necessarily that you get to eat whatever you want. Um, but this idea that increasing our calories in a, you know, increasing good calories for some extended period of time, whatever that means, depending on who you talk to, can reset our metabolism. I've heard everything from having higher calorie amounts on the weekend for a day or two every week um, to longer term, two weeks at a time, three weeks at a time. You just mentioned the first time I've ever heard this as like a six month um, challenge, but I've also never heard of reverse diet, talked about reverse dieting in the context of carnivore. So why don't you walk us through a little bit of your understanding of what reverse dieting is and how that may be a tool for not only metabolic health, but perhaps a stall or a snag in our progress? Yeah, I'd love to. I have been working on my new meal plans or reverse diet plans because I started researching it about a year ago and I had gotten to the point where I was doing carnivore for two years and I realized like I wasn't eating that much food every day because it was so satiating. And I started to get a little bit too thin. I really didn't like the way I looked and I sort of felt like I looked gaunt. And so I wanted to put on a bit more weight, like in a healthy way, and also just heal my metabolism from years and years and years of restriction. So I think a reverse diet is really great for anyone who has done chronic dieting. I mean, there are some people out there who've just done a couple diets once in their once or twice in their lives, but a lot of us have been dieting for decades. And so, like I said, the body's become really, really fuel efficient. And this term actually comes from the bodybuilding space, which is how I studied it because bodybuilders hmm. have really interesting patterns where they go into these off seasons and like diet breaks, which we never really hear talked about in like outside of the bodybuilding world. Like you're just like, I'm always dieting or I'm like on a diet break, but you don't hear about these off seasons. And one of the reasons that bodybuilders can sustain these super, super, super low levels of body fat when they're in their training season is because they take like a year off or six months off in between. And in that time, they just build muscle and they eat a really high amount of calories, but they don't just go from like you know, if they've dieted down to like a thousand calories to get stage ready, they don't just go the next day and eat 3000 calories. What they do is they add about a hundred calories every couple of weeks at the same time doing resistance training, like a lot of resistance training at least four to five days a week, lifting weights and, you know, expending a good deal amount of exercise. But the key is they also stop all cardio activity. So you really give your body this break. You stop doing any cardio. It's a season. They call it like a strength improvement season, strength gaining season and improvement season. And they take that six months or a year period and they gain weight, but it's very, very gradual. And because of the resistance training, they're able to like 
you don't just become like a big blob of fat overnight. Like they're consistently training. So they're working out. Um, but then they also cut down on the cardio and then basically they've gained all this muscle in their off season because they're super, super well fueled. And then when they go back into like a prep, which can be anywhere from like six weeks to 17 weeks, something like that, they will gradually every week start to cut those calories by a hundred calories again. And most of this is done with carbs. Um, so they'll cut like a hundred calories of carb, a little bit of fat, and then they'll start doing cardio again. And then in that like six month period or three month or four month, whatever it is, they'll get stage ready. And it's super effective, um, as a controlled like weight gain and weight cutting. Um, so it's, it's really, really great for maintaining or restoring your metabolic rate if you've been dieting for a long time. It's just like taking a season, <laughs> season off where you don't do any restriction, any dieting, you don't do any cardio, you incorporate resistance training and you up your calories by a hundred for each week. And in the keto, you would be adding it with fat mostly. Like you can do it with a little bit of carb, but most of those added calories will come from fat. So when I did it, I was, I went up to about 2300 calories and then maintain there for a while and then I did gain weight back in that time but I was also restoring my hormones restoring my metabolic rate and then afterwards you know if I wanted to cut down a little bit I could do it at a much healthier level of calories so I think it's it's super effective amazing tool and you know it's really not talked about enough like if you pick up any magazine you know in your teenagers or when you're in your 20s that talks about diets like no one ever talks about reverse dieting and how to safely reverse your way out of a diet and it, it's not supposed to be something that you're perpetually on well you know there's also well i'll get i'll get to another question in a second but before we get off this practically speaking uh if we're not um you know in Oh, some glass just broke. I don't know if you heard that. Um, if we're not uh, perpetually, um, you know, in a bodybuilding mode or something, and we're purely talking about somebody on a weight loss journey, they're, they're a yo-yo dieter, a lifelong dieter. What does this look like if somebody wants to start reverse dieting tomorrow? What does that really look like for someone like me? So you gradually, you, you take an account of what your maintenance calories are. Um, I have a maintenance, there's lots of calorie counters and stuff out there. I have one at ketogenic girl and you click on macro calculator calorie. It's called calorie calculator. And it basically tells you how many calories you're maintaining at. If you get a body scan done, it's going to be more accurate. It'll tell you exactly what your basal metabolic rate is. And then it'll tell you sort of how many calories you burn in a day based on like what your activity level is, if it's more sedentary or more active. So you find out what your maintenance is. Some people have been shocked to find out that their maintenance is like 900 calories because they thought it was higher than that. They, you know, because we're told 2000 calories a day, but some people like their lean mass is really low. They have a high body fat percentage. They've been dieting for so long that the basal metabolic rate, the metabolism has like slowed down to keep you alive on a smaller reduced amount of food. So the 
basal metabolic rate gets really, really low. And so say, for example, it was like a thousand calories, which happens a lot to people who've been dieting for a long time. That's where they maintain. And you know, because anytime you eat more than whatever that amount is, you put on weight. So you basically every two weeks would add about a hundred calories to that amount and then stay there for two weeks. And then you add another hundred calories and you would just go up until you get to whatever amount you want to get to. Say it's 2,500 or 3,000 or 4,000. You know, you can go as high as you want, but you take that amount of time. And then during that week, you're adding in anywhere from three to five sessions on average, like four sessions of resistance training, where every couple of weeks, you're also increasing the amount of weight that you're lifting and you make sure to not do any cardio at all. So you're only doing like light walking, maybe some hiking, but really, really keep the cardio activity low. And then once you've been at that, if you decide to do it for three months or six months, you know, your metabolism, your hormones and everything should be really well corrected. And then if you want, you can go into a cutting phase again. And so you go to like 2000 calories or 1800. Um, it's usually recommended to first start at like 2000 calories. And then you can always go to 1800, 1900 or 1800 if you want to later. And then you will just gradually lose weight at that level. And then you can also add in cardio if you want to, but it's not, um, usually recommended unless you're needed, unless you're like an actual stage. Um, sure. You know, sure. But that's going to kind of like reset that rate. So now if before you were a basal metabolic rate, meaning kind of like the minimum calories that your body used, if you were just laying down all day, um, if I'm understanding it correctly, yeah. is so low, almost to a point where we've damaged our metabolic rate because of years of dieting and restriction, we can take three months or six months and try to bring that rate back up so that it's actually a livable rate that we can then sustain on for the rest of our lives is that kind of the idea here yes and what's really interesting about it is that you have something called the tdee which is a total daily energy expenditure and a lot of that is it's made up of four components you know you have your basal metabolic rate in there but you also have something called neat or non-exercise activity thermogenesis so during the day we have these like little movements fidgeting like all the movements I'm oh, yeah. doing right now that <laughs> I'm don't a involve exercise. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. you um if you go on like if you do a fast or you go on like a really, really restricted diet, your body will stop a lot of that movement. Like you'll see people um like they'll blink really slowly and it's because the body is trying to reduce all non-essential activity. Um, some of your total energy expenditure is made up of your the TEF, which is the amount of energy expended from the food that you eat. So that goes down when you eat less food too. So when you do this um, reverse diet and you're eating more food, your body is also burning more calories and protein has the highest thermogenic, thermogenic mm. effect of food. So like we said before, you're eating more protein, your TEF goes up. So you're starting to move more, you know, you're your body's burning more calories because you're eating more. And so that reset in your metabolism happens through all these different mechanisms. And a lot of it is just coming from the fact that you're boosting your calories and your calories are abundant to the point that your metabolism 
now can restore itself to its full like maximal functioning and then when you do cut you're not like doing it at an extreme level and so your body can maintain all of those like functions and um your metabolism is just much 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 higher hmm. i'm pretty fascinated by this and you know <laughs> i i've 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 talked about um in the podcast or we'll be talking about it um a little bit about how I sort of feel like I'm at this like set point where like, I just don't think I'm really going to be able to go much lower than my current weight unless I do extreme restriction, unless I like, this is just sort of where I'm at. I'm never going to be skinny. Um, and I'm not, I, I could, I could lose another 20 pounds if I just go into an extreme restrictive space, but I understand myself enough to know that that's not healthy for me mentally or physically, but I'm very intrigued by this discussion around, you know, I, there may be another tool I can try. Um, and this, this kind of fascinates me. So I appreciate the conversation, Vanessa, this was really fun. A lot of information was, was presented here today and I have learned a ton with you. Um, thanks a lot for being here. This is, this is really cool. It was my absolute pleasure and super honored that you asked me to be on your show. I appreciate that. Um, guys, please make sure you uh, check out Vanessa for a lot more information. She has a great book out. Uh, search for it on Amazon and also uh, at Ketogenic Girl on social media so you can find more about all her projects. Uh, Fast Keto is your podcast name and which we're, we're actually going to record an episode right now. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna swap <laughs> roles here, and the student will become the teacher. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the the host will become the guest, and the guest will become the host. Um, so make sure to check out all of her amazing episodes um, at the Fast Keto Podcast. Um, and if you guys haven't yet, maybe pick up a copy of New Keto Cooking, the uh, the new cookbook that I wrote that came out recently that really takes a new approach to keto food, where it's um, it's really not a diet book. It's about eating real, whole, amazing foods for, and that really anybody will love keto or not. Um, and uh, find me next, uh, right before uh, I record with uh, with Vanessa for her podcast, I am going to do a little bonus episode. So I'm going to kick Vanessa off the camera in just a moment and uh, do a little bonus episode where I reflect on everything we talked about here. And you can find that at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Chef Michael. And you can join to be a member and get all the bonus episodes as well as some other goodies. Thank you so much to our sponsor, Redmond Real Salt, for all you do for this podcast. Guys, make sure you get some salt for your diet. As Vanessa even pointed out, meat and salt, you can live on that. <laughs> and so having a really good salt that's packed with trace minerals and electrolytes is really important. And you can do that by going to redmond.life. Put in the checkout code Chef Michael for 15% off your order. And also here in the States, you can find Redmond Salt pretty much every grocery store now in the spice aisle, which is pretty cool. Um, Vanessa, thank you again. I love talking to you always. And uh, I really had a great time today. Thank you so much, Michael. I'll see you very shortly. <laughs> Catch me <laughs> on the Fast Keto Podcast in just a minute. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye.